Exodus chapter 12, our study this morning. I've entitled it Witnessing Passover. I know it's mid-July. I know we passed the Passover, you know, the resurrection season, all of the things that happened in the springtime. I realize that, but this is where we are in the Bible, Exodus chapter 12. We went through much of chapter 12, all the way through the 42nd verse on Wednesday night, covered a lot of ground. If you missed that, I encourage you, go back at some point when you have time and study it through because it is one of the most vital things for Christians to understand. There is incredibly important theology in Exodus 11 and 12 that I believe is for us to comprehend and it will increase and deepen your faith as well as your understanding about what God is up to. There are some things that we left off for the rest of the chapter, some things related to Passover that we still need to know, we need to learn. So I invite you to to these things. Exodus chapter 12, if you'll go all the way back to verse three and follow along with me for a moment, Exodus 12, three, speak to all the congregation of Israel saying, on the 10th of this month, they are to each one take a lamb for themselves according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. Skip down to verse six. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole congregation or a whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Skip down now to verse 19. Going on to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is connected to Passover, immediately follows on the heels of Passover. He says, seven days there shall be no leaven found in your houses. For whoever eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is an alien or a native of the land. Now go to verse 43. The Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, this is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner is to eat of it, but every man's slave purchased with money after you have circumcised him, then he may eat of it. A sojourner or a hired servant shall not eat of it. It is to be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. All the congregation of Israel are to celebrate this. But if a stranger sojourns with you and celebrates the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised and then let him come near to celebrate it and he shall be like a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person may eat of it. The same law shall apply to the native as to the stranger who sojourns among you. Then all the sons of Israel did. They did just as the Lord had commanded Moses And Aaron, which we pointed out Wednesday night, was a great revelation of community faith. All of them believed enough to do what they were asked to do here without question. Remarkable. And in verse 51, on that same day, the Lord brought the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. Who can fathom the mind of God? in preparing these things and establishing these things. Pesach, Passover, and Chag Hamatzot, that is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. These are the first two of what we will see as we go through Torah, the seven feasts of Israel. And this is the first explanation and the the first working of these two feasts, Pesach and Chag Hamatzot. 
First of the two of the seven, first two of the seven feasts of Israel established by Yahweh, note his timing, on the night before and the morning of the great exodus of the congregation of Israel from Egypt. Note that these are also the two longest standing, longest celebrated feasts of all history. Don't know if you've thought about that before. But these two have been going on annually longer than any other celebration, any other feast that people try to reach back to. And I wanted to spend another study on them because as I shared about all of chapter 12, these are fundamental theology to the Christian faith. After all, we are followers of and believers in Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ, Jesus, the risen Messiah. So this is important stuff. And actually, as we move through, I'm gonna give you four things to jot down as we move forward in a few minutes. Wait for those. I actually have another list to give you first. But I wanna give you some theology this morning. This is some biblical teaching. Application will come toward the end. But for a few minutes here, we're just gonna dive in to try and understand what it is God set up here and why it was so important to Israel, why it's so important that you and, and me as Christians, that we know these things. We talked about Wednesday night that in the Lord's dispensation with Israel, we see how he goes about the cultivation of faith. It's remarkable what he does in our lives from the hardships of the plagues to the feasts themselves, to the difficulty of the wilderness wandering, to Torah law, to the sacrifices, all these things have a single purpose behind them. And that is Yahweh weaving his word and his works into the fabric of the community and experience of the average Israelite. What he's doing here is making the relationship with him and their involvement with him part of everything they do all the way down to Shabbat, the Sabbath, so that their daily life would be revolving around the Lord, that he would be the focal point. We have such a different mindset now. Can you say with all honesty, and, and, and I'm not one who can say this necessarily. I'd like to say this, I at times aspire to this, but can you say with all honesty that your entire life revolves around gathering before the Lord each week on Sunday? Oh, I'm not asking, is it the high point? I'm saying, is it the focal point of gathering? And I'm talking about community, congregation, gathering. Is that the focal point of, of where we're all headed each week? Is Jesus the focal point of every single day and thought and action and behavior? See, that's what God's doing with Israel is he's weaving that relationship, the I am, ever-present relationship with Israel. He's weaving it into every day, into their thinking, into their celebration, into their lifestyle. And that's why he created these significant remembrances. We would call them mnemonic devices, that is, these feasts and these festivals that were annual, seven of them, and three that you had to go up to Jerusalem every single year just to celebrate. Significant remembrances like Pesach, Passover, Hagamatzot, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Why? To keep the reality of redemption fresh on the mind and on the heart. But more wonderfully, you and I know, looking back, these 
holy remembrances were not fully realized until Jesus came. And when he came, he fulfilled them all. And I love that because it makes the relationship we have with Jesus even more significant, even more rich and more deep and more historically profound. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover has also been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, that is of unleavened bread, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Clean out the old leaven. Remember Passover? Remember the feast of unleavened bread? Live that way. Live as though the Passover sacrifice has been made because it has, and walk as though we were in the first week of the Exodus with unleavened bread, unleavened lives, lives not surrounding sin, but cleaned out and purified. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. He said, if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth knowing that you were not redeemed from perishable things or with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And note what Peter says here, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him, that is Jesus, from the dead and gave him, that is Jesus, glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Oh, not just Jesus as God, as Lord. Of course, of course Jesus was known. But Christ as Passover was foreknown before the foundation of the world. This was always God's plan. And we can see the intensifying significance of the lamb as God places this before us across the timeline of history and in the Bible. Some good things to jot down here. These are not the main four things. We'll get to those in a second. But first off, note this. We see a lamb given for a man. A lamb for a man, Genesis 4.4, Abel on his part also brought the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. He gave a lamb, and God regarded him, a lamb for a man. But then, then we saw, as we studied through Genesis, and as we recognized in history, then we saw a ram for a man. Not a lamb, but a ram, Genesis 22, verse 8. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Seems to be a bit of a mix-up here. <laughs> you see, Abraham told Isaac, God's gonna provide a lamb. We saw the word for lamb Wednesday night. It's seh, S-E-H, seh, a lamb. God's gonna provide a lamb. We'll have a lamb for the sacrifice. No problem, but if you recall the story, Abraham did not sacrifice a lamb. He sacrificed a ram. And the word ram is very different. It's ayil, and it means mighty and strong, a bigger beast, a powerful beast, not, not a little lamb, but a, but a strong, powerful beast. 
And after the Lord stayed Abraham's hand, Abraham looked up. Genesis 22, 13, raised his eyes and looked, and behold, a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Well, it's close, but it's not a lamb. There on Mount Moriah, God will provide a lamb, Abraham said prophetically. Listen, get this, close does not count in prophecy. It, it, prophecy is not like horseshoes or hand grenades. <laughs> it's not get it as close as you can and we'll consider it prophetic. And that's something that's a little messy in, in, in prophecy that, that people put forward oftentimes today, even in the church. We got, man, he was close. Hey, if it's not spot on, if it's not absolutely accurate, it's not prophecy. Not where God is concerned, not where the Bible is concerned. Biblical prophecy is always exact. It is always spot on. It is never close and it is never a near miss. And so while we saw with Abel a lamb for a man and then we saw a ram for a man, we later will see a lamb for a fam. A lamb for a fam. There's a lamb for a family. Now, now remember, Abraham on Mount Moriah, because that's on hold right now. God will provide a lamb, but we see a ram, so you gotta wait on that one. But then we see as the story progresses, a lamb for a fam, and that's again Exodus chapter 12, verse three. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying on the 10th of this month, they are to take one lamb for themselves, each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. So a lamb for a fam. Well, then God's going to require a lamb for a nation. As we consider this, continue to see this lamb picture portrayed, lamb for a man, Abel, then we see a ram, which seems to be a little off, and then we see a lamb for a family, Exodus 12, 3, and now a lamb for a nation, Exodus 29, 38. Note this, now this is what you shall offer on the altar two one-year-old lambs each day continuously. That was God's original design for Israel. At the tabernacle, in the courtyard, on the altar of sacrifice, which is gonna, we'll see that later in Exodus. Later in the temple, that every morning and every evening a lamb was to be sacrificed in Israel. Verse 39, then one lamb you shall offer in the morning, the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And there shall be one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour, mixed with one-fourth of a hen of beaten oil and one-fourth of a hen of wine for a drink offering with the lamb. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer it with the same grain offering and the same drink offering as in the morning for a soothing aroma and offering by fire to the Lord. It shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord where I will meet with you to speak with you there. I will meet there with the sons of Israel and it shall be consecrated by my Glory, a lamb for a nation, not just once a year at Yom Kippur, but every single day, morning and evening, the continual offering, the continual sacrifice. Why? So that God can meet with the people. So God's presence could be there. There had to be a lamb. There needed to be a sacrifice, something for the sin of man. Once a year is not enough. 
Once every special event, once every feast, once every occasion, not enough. Every day, every morning, every evening, it was the job of the priest, as we will see, to offer up this sacrifice. So God lays in, fascinating here, a, a, a lamb for a man, then a ram for a man, but then a lamb for a fam, a lamb for a nation, and finally we see where it's all going. For there on Mount Moriah, where a lamb was substitutionary back in the days of Abraham, we see the lamb, the lamb slain for the, for the whole entire world because God gave a lamb for the world. And that's where this was all heading. John the Baptist, before it all happened, saw Jesus coming and he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He recognized prophetically by the Spirit as Jesus came on the scene, here he is, the lamb that we have been seeing pictures and types of across all of history is here. He has arrived after the fact. John the Apostle said, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. God provided a lamb, just as Abraham said, in the very place Abraham and Isaac stood there on Mount Moriah. God provided a lamb in the person of Jesus Christ. Later, John will write in Revelation 13, verse eight, he will call Jesus the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Do you see how significant the lamb is? Now you may say, well, I know that. I know about Jesus being the lamb of God. That's fundamental to everything that we're now gonna talk about. So keep that in mind. Jesus fulfilled in himself, in his person, as he came into the world, as he lived, as he died and resurrected, he fulfilled the most exacting, minute requirements of the Paschal lamb, the Passover lamb even dying on Passover, as we've seen, on the 14th of the first month when the Passover lamb was to be sacrificed between the two settings. Your Bible say at twilight? At twilight means between the two settings of the sun. And Jesus not only had the last supper after that first setting or between the two settings, he was killed, sacrificed between the two settings. It's remarkable. God planned ahead so that Jesus could celebrate it and then be the Passover lamb at that same time. Now again, we cover most of this in chapter 12 midweek and there's so much there, please go back and study that if you missed it. But there are further implications of Passover I would like to witness with you this morning. And here we go with number one. Number one, four things to note. Currifragium. I'll spell it for you. C-R-U-R-I, Curry, Fragium, F-R-A, G-I-U-M. It's a Latin word, currifragium. Watch this, verse 46 of chapter 12. It is to be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. Currifragium. Because of this command, Exodus 12, 46, and a couple of other places in scripture that verify this. To this day, the Jewish people in keeping Pesach in the celebration of Passover on the table of the meal will always set an unbroken roasted shank bone of a lamb. 
it's always present in the elements on the table. It's always part of the deal. Now, you Bible students know this. This was no arbitrary directive. It was a prophetic word given all the way at the outset of Passover, at the very first commandment of the keeping of Passover. God said, you shall not break any bones of the lamb. It is so significant, he repeats it two more times. Numbers chapter 9, verse 12. They shall leave none of it until morning, nor break a bone of it. According to all the statute of the Passover, they shall observe it. No broken bones. Psalm 34, verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Verse 20. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. So once again, a restatement. David there in Psalm 34 implies a connection between the spotless lamb for Passover and the perfectly righteous man who now we know who that is. It's Jesus Christ. Not one bone of his shall be broken. But God established and repeated this precedent as a Profound projection of the Messiah. Turn in your Bibles now to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. While you're turning there, I want you to keep something in mind. And that is that the device of Roman crucifixion was not intended to be a quick execution. It was a prolonged, excruciating, protracted punishment of deterrence. Historically, we know it was primarily used on slaves, but it was also used for criminals, foreigners, non-citizens, revolutionaries, as Jesus was seen as a revolutionary, and sometimes military deserters, basically outcasts of society. Roman citizens were not typically subject to crucifixion unless there was some violation, major serious violation of citizenship. Commonly, it was practiced in Jerusalem and Judea in the first century against the Jewish insurgency. A lot of crucifixion was going on during that time and in that particular place. But again, the purpose of crucifixion was to be lasting and was to be a punishment of deterrence that the whole community would see the ongoing suffering of this person lasting three to four days up on the cross. John chapter 19, verse 30. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head, gave up his spirit. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. I mentioned Wednesday, the Sabbath immediately following Passover, the next day, or immediately following it was called the Great Sabbath. And then there was one a week later after the Feast of Unleavened Bread as well. So it was a, a high day, a great Sabbath. They asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away, verse 32. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him, that is, with Jesus. And in Latin, that word is fragium. Currifragium, they actually had a word for it and it means smashing the leg bones with a mallet or an iron club. You can imagine just how painful that would be by itself. But this process of currifragium is described in numerous historical accounts 
along with crucifixion. What's interesting is the only archaeological evidence that we have conclusive of a crucified man was discovered in Jerusalem in 1968. So the skeletal remains of one who was clearly crucified with, with scarrings on the, on the bones of the wrists and scarrings on the bones of the feet as though a nail had been driven through. And in this, these skeletal remains, what's interesting is along with all that, the shin bones were shattered by a single blow. Quirifragium was common in crucifixion as the death blow. This is the final blow. Now, as I said before, death by crucifixion was by all accounts completely brutal. The condemned, and let's go over it again, was nailed up by hands and feet, arms stretched out. The internal, what are called the intercostal muscles between the ribs and the muscle of the diaphragm that worked together for breathing would contract and spasm as the victim was hung upon the cross, racked with pain and convulsion. Involuntarily, to relieve that pain and constriction for breathing, the crucified would push up on the feet that are nailed into the cross. Upon doing that, radiating pain would shoot from the feet up through the legs and the body as the body would shudder in agony, but it was the only way to breathe. And then they would hold as long as possible and drop down again. And this was the process over and over for up to four days. Just stunning how, how wicked, how evil, and how violent mankind can be. Quirifragium was with this. It was the shattering of the shin bones, which would cause, obviously, an immediate shock to the system, along with the crucifixion, even more blood loss, but effectively, the crucified man would then drop and would not be able to breathe anymore, paralyzing his chest, paralyzing the abdomen, and the victim suffocated and died literally within minutes. When quirifragium was applied, it was to put an end to the crucifixion, it would be over. So if a crucified man was still surviving at four days, they could just come smash the legs, he'd drop down and it'd be done. Well now on this day, we're just six hours into what normally is a three to four day process and of course the two criminals are still alive but verse 33 of John 19 says, coming to Jesus when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Quirifragium did not apply. In fact, the soldiers would have been surprised. It, it's only been six hours. The other two criminals, they were still alive. Jesus, a relatively young man, would have been in decent shape. It, it was surprising that they found him dead. Hey, not to you, not to me, because Jesus didn't die of suffocation, shocky, despairing, gasping for air. No, Jesus controlled his final breath. Jesus chose, he declared the moment of his death with that single glorious word, die." it is finished. He determined the end. And upon saying it is finished, he died of his own free will. Jesus died of his own volition. And you know what? He said he would. John chapter 10, verse 17, Jesus said, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. 
No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. And this commandment I receive from my father. My choice. And after six hours, having completed everything that he needed to as our Passover sacrifice, Jesus said, it's finished. It's all done, all accomplished, completely fulfilled. By the way, part of his agreement was with the Father was no crurifragium, <laughs> no broken bones. Verse 34 of John 19, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out, which signifies medically a burst heart. It proved beyond the shadow of death with the blood and the water spurting out of the side that Jesus was dead. So there's witness to that. And he who has seen has testified, John writes, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth so that you may also believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. Exodus 12, 46, Numbers 9, verse 12, and Psalm 34, verse 20. Not a bone of his shall be broken. Verse 37 says, and again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. That's Zechariah 12, 10. We see again, and you may have studied this. Stay with me. We see the intricate, exacting purpose of prophecy, the divine intentionality that it is as God said, nor are you to break any bone of it back in Exodus chapter 12. And people say, I wish God could be more specific. I wish God could be just a little more clear about things. The problem is not in the clarity of the father. It's in the lack of education of the children. It's in the fact that no one's reading it. But God declared these things across all time that when they happen, we would understand. He gave the lamb, the lamb, the lamb, all through history. So when Christ was crucified, we would understand. We could comprehend this was his plan from the very beginning. Every single one of the 206 bones in the body of Jesus Christ remained intact just as prophesied. To prove, to show as another example that Jesus is the spotless lamb, is the perfectly righteous man. By the way, where is blood produced physiologically? It's in the bones. Primarily, that is 60 to 70% of all white blood cells are produced in the bone marrow. All of the red blood cells and all of the blood platelets are produced in the bone marrow. But when a bone is fractured, there is a massive disruption to the blood supply, at least from that bone. And it's also been shown that when a bone is fractured, that blood can even come to a full stop, if not be severely limited in terms of its production in that bone. Man, it's as if to say the pure blood of Jesus Christ from unbroken bones is limitless in supply. There's always enough. There's never a disruption in the flow of the blood of Jesus. Now I'm speaking spiritually as to your salvation and mine and anyone who calls out the name of Jesus. 
As Hebrews 9.22 says, without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Unlimited, all-sufficient, ever-cleansing blood from the unbroken bones. But John says something else. John says, as we are cleansed from all sin, we have fellowship. I want you to let that sink in. We have fellowship. See, that's the second aspect of the Lord's Passover to look at this morning. So intriguing. That's why I began in verse three. Go back there. Exodus chapter 12, verse three. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying on the 10th of this month they are to each one, take a lamb for themselves according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. Again, verse six. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Verse 19, again, Seven days there shall be no leaven found in your houses. For whoever eats what is leaven, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is an alien or a native of the land. Are you getting it? Do you hear it? Congregation. Passover is a congregation experience. It is a congregational event. It is in part for the purpose of drawing together the congregation, and that's your second point. Prorefragium, which did not happen. Number two, congregation, which must happen. Exodus chapter three, verse 12, note this in your Bibles, is the first time in all the scripture that the word congregation is used. For any group, you will not see it in the Bible prior to Exodus 12, three. And now suddenly it's gonna be used 15 times in Exodus, congregation, it will be used more in the first five books of Torah than anywhere else in the Older Testament. And you want to know what the first time is that we see the equivalent Greek word for congregation in the New Testament? Acts chapter 4, verse 32, and the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. That's the congregation. The blood brings the congregation together. The congregation centers on the Passover lamb. Pesach, among all the feasts of Israel, elevated the high purpose of the congregation before the Lord. Verse 43, note this, Exodus 12, 43, and the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, this is the ordinance of the Passover, no foreigner is to eat of it. This is not for the outsider, this is for the congregation. Only the congregation. Now you might say, well, that's a little elitist. Sounds kind of exclusive. Not at all. The whole idea, again, is to form the bond of this congregation around a single unifying factor, but read on, verse 45. A sojourner or a hired servant shall not eat of it. And the Lord here gives four different kinds of outsiders. 
in Exodus chapter 12. In verse 43, he uses the word foreigner. That's nakar. And in Hebrew, that means a non-Israelite. That's someone who is not of Israel, but resides in Israel temporarily. So that could be for trade or commerce, someone who comes into Israel for business, someone who maybe they want to go to the Tel Aviv, you know, they want a vacation. <laughs> the, the Mediterranean coast, they could do that. People could come in and vacation there. They could be in the land temporarily, but they are not part of the congregation if they're a foreigner. Second place we see it in verse 45, the word sojourner, which means tosab, and then hired servant in that same verse, which is sakir, and those are two categories of non-Israelite wage earners. So nakar, a foreigner, non-Israelite, someone who's just traveling in the land, but they're not part of things there. They don't stay. The tosab, sojourner, sakir, hired servant. These are two categories again, of wage earners, so they're actually working in Israel, but they're not Israelites, so they're not part of the congregation. They've got a green card, you might say. They've got a work permit, but they're not part of the congregation. They do not take Passover. Stay with me, don't be offended yet. I'll give you opportunity for offense later. <laughs> and then there's the word stranger in verse 48, which is ger, and ger is a non-Israelite permanent resident. So they have a right to be permanently in the land, but they're not part of the congregation. But watch this. Here's how we know that this wasn't about discrimination and it wasn't about segregation. Verse 44, but every man's slave purchased with money after you have circumcised him, then he may eat of it. Verse 48, if a stranger sojourns with you and celebrates the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised and then let him come near to celebrate it and he shall be like a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person may eat of it. Verse 49, the same law shall apply to the native as to the stranger who sojourns among you. That is, even the native Israelite could not partake of Passover unless, number three, for circumcision, circumcision. Any and all who were of Israel, naturally a native, or among Israel in any of these other categories, if they were circumcised, they are welcome to the feast. They become part of the congregation. They're embraced in the community as long as they conformed to the covenant of circumcision. That was God's one requirement. So this was not about people keeping people out. It was just saying, no, you are welcome. You're invited. You can be part of this, but you gotta be circumcised. That's the law. That's the standard. That's the rule. You're welcome to be part of the Israelite congregation. But if you want to be part of us, then you have to do as we do. You have to be like us, especially in this one area of circumcision. You know what? Let me just apply this for a moment. One of the things that is absolutely tearing at the fabric of America as a nation is a contradiction that we're seeing playing out right now. And that is between people striving for equality on the one hand while tearing at uniformity on the other. 
I want equal rights as a citizen. I just don't want to conform to the responsibilities of a citizen. You see the problem? I want all the rights and privileges. I just don't want to do as you do. I just don't want to be a part of the law and the system and, and everything that you have set up in, in this particular country. The idea of an immigrant becoming a citizen, please hear me on this, the idea of someone immigrating to the United States to become a citizen is all about identification with this new community that he or she is joining. It is not about coming in and segregating to live apart. No nation can exist that way. No nation can continue, no country can or has ever existed without dividing and fracturing the only way America, and this is not just a big, you know, America speech. This would apply to any country in the world, but we'll apply it to our own. The only way America can be a strong country is as, as we all come in, this country of immigrants, we conform to the standard of America. If you want to be a British citizen, you got to conform to the standard of Britain, if you want to be a Canadian, when you go in, you have to conform to the standard of Canadian society. That's the only way a country can exist. And so what the Lord is saying here, all the non-citizen outsiders of Israel had a fair choice. Sure, you can come, you can live, you can trade, you can vacation in the land. But if you want to share in the feasts and the festivals and the rights and the identification of the citizenry, you gotta embrace the promises, the precepts, and indeed the person of Yahweh. Gotta be like us. This is not, by the way, Israel pronouncing it, it's God pronouncing it. If a non-citizen wants to partake of Passover, they need to be like you. They have to be circumcised. They have to embrace you and all that I am, the Lord says. Ruth did. Uh, she wasn't circumcised, but she embraced. Ruth chapter 1, verse 16, she said to Naomi, her mother-in-law, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. That's the right attitude. And we see that in immigrants who have become citizens in the United States, and you can see it often with a tear in the eye. They talk about how they love this country, how they love the opportunity given to them as they've come into, as they've come into this country. Man, that moves my heart. Because the idea is anyone can be an American citizen if they will come in and submit to the standard. Now, all politics aside, I'm just telling you, and you can base it on history, no country can exist without borders. No country can exist without some standard of what it means to be a citizen of that country. In Israel, anyone could share in Pesach. The table was open. The feast, the invitation was to all, but they couldn't do it casually. They had to do it faithfully. They had to come in under the standard, and the standard that God sets is circumcision. Now, stay with me on this. Listen. Circumcision is the individual's faithful acceptance, not of the Mosaic covenant. That hasn't been given yet. This is the person's acceptance of the Abrahamic covenant. Matier says the covenant 
is true to its Abrahamic foundation in that in Abraham all nations shall be blessed, not just the Jew. All nations through this Abrahamic unconditional covenant that God made with the man Abraham. Mottier goes on and says, so the circumcised stranger is able to come into full membership under the same principle as the native born. The, the non-Israelite, could be from any other country, but if he comes into the land, resides in the land, and wants to be a part of this people, this congregation, through circumcision and the acceptance of the Abrahamic covenant, he is now a part of things. And you know what's remarkable to me? That invitation to the outsider, bringing the outsider into the congregation of Israel, may be seen as prototypical of the church. That's, that's the, the layout. This is the idea. Let me read to you Ephesians chapter four, verse three, Verse four, where Paul says, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, that is Messiah, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. To be specific, here it is. The Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body. And note this, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Fellow partakers, they have come in, the Gentiles have come into the promise of Messiah, a promise first made to Israel, but now extended all out to all people. Come in, but there's a standard. The standard is Christ, the Messiah, the focal point of the gospel. Listen to, um, again, to 1 Peter. Chapter two, verse nine, read this when we first opened up this morning. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, which are all things that were said of Israel previously and only of Israel. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And this is one of my favorite of all scriptures. Peter said, for once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You know what? The same was first said of Israel. Hosea chapter one, verse 10. Hosea chapter two, verse 23. Look it up on your own time. That was proclaimed by God of Israel. Once you were not a people, but I made you a people. Once you did not have mercy. Now I've given you mercy. Peter, a Galilean Jew, realizes and speaks by the Spirit, this applies to the Gentiles now as well. Through faith in the same Messiah of Israel. Now go back to Exodus chapter 12. Ironically, by coming into the congregation, Peter says something else. Let me read this to you. He says, verse 11 Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. You know what's, mar what's marvelous and amazing and ironic? It's that as we come into the congregation, we now become aliens and strangers to the rest of the world. Our citizenship now is of the kingdom. We come to Christ, we become strangers everywhere else. We're at home with Jesus. 
but we are foreigners in this world looking for our better country to come. But wait, wait, listen a little longer. For the alien foreigner to truly be a part of Israel, they had to conform to the Abrahamic covenant, which again was what? To be circumcised. They had to get circumcised. And there were Christians in the first century who got confused. There were Jews who wanted to believe in the idea of Yeshua HaMashiach, that Jesus truly was Messiah, but they were saying, that's fine, but you still got to get circumcised. You still need to be circumcised. Paul responds in the book of Galatians. He really goes after these Judaizers and says, circumcise yourselves. Cut the whole thing off, he basically says. Don't go asking people to get circumcised. That's not part of this deal. And so it does raise that interesting question. If coming into the congregation with, with the outsiders from Israel, if for them to be part of this, they had to adhere to the Abrahamic covenant, the sole focus, the standard was circumcision. Why don't we? Why aren't Christians required to be circumcised today? And furthermore, what about the women? The Bible does not teach female circumcision at all. There are other religions that do, and it's brutal. It's not taught that way. It is, it is only the males that are circumcised. Well, so how, then how, what about the wives, the daughters, the sisters? How, what's their place in Israel? Are they outsiders? Not at all. Because through circumcision, the women of Israel, they came into the covenant through the circumcision of the fathers and more intimately, their husbands. The circumcision was of the men. It impacted the women. They were involved in the congregation because of this. Now stay with me, listen. What is the church to Jesus? We're the bride. We're the bride. The bride is not circumcised. The groom is circumcised. Luke chapter two, verse 21, when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was called Jesus. Jesus was circumcised. Now, the, the spiritual implications are so much bigger. The flesh implications, though, even those are covered by the perfection of prophecy of the Lord. When he established the Abrahamic covenant, you know how you, you know how I become a part of that covenant, a part of that blessing? Through Jesus, the groom who was himself circumcised all the way back to that covenant. We now become part of the congregation. Jesus was circumcised. We are his bride. And an intimate faith in him is my connection to the Abrahamic covenant and the blessings that go out to everybody. The Abrahamic covenant, again, was sealed. It was um, signified by circumcision. And now, in Christ Jesus, we are sealed and signified by his Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 1.21, now he who establishes us with you is Christ, or in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. The Bible talks about the, uns, the, the circumcision of the heart. That's a spiritual circumcision. And it's reflected in the fact that we have the Spirit 
Ephesians 1.13, in him you also, Paul says, the also indicating Gentiles. After listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, that is along with those first believing Jews, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Here's what I'm getting at. Don't miss this. It wasn't the Passover of Israel that united the congregation. It wasn't even technically, listen, circumcision that united the congregation. No, the feast was called in Exodus 12, 11, Yahweh's Passover. In Exodus 12, 48, the Passover to Yahweh. Circumcision was a sign of faith in Yahweh. We have faith in Jesus Christ. He is the focal point. He is the foundation of the congregation. And the implications for you and me today are huge. That is that unity and harmony and fellowship and community happen in and because of Jesus Christ. In and because of the Lord himself. For no man can lay any other foundation 1 Corinthians 3.11, Paul says, than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And that's why Yahweh's Passover has another name. Christ our Passover. Christ our Passover. Now, again, please listen. The word congregation in Hebrew is adat. A-D-A-T, adat. And it is translated company, it's translated gathering. It can even be used to translate a multitude. But it's an assembly of people, just as the church is called the ecclesia, the assembly, the called, right? A dot. But a dot comes from the root word aid in the Hebrew, which means witness. Witness. Just as Passover was for the witness, the congregational witness of Yahweh. So Christ, our Passover, is the witness, the testimony, the standard of all Christian fellowship. It's Jesus. So we've looked at the curifragium, we've looked at the congregation, we've considered the seal of circumcision, but it all comes back, number four, to Christ, our Passover. Christ, our Passover. He is the witness. He is the testimony. He is the standard of all Christian fellowship. You know what is not the criterion of our fellowship as believers? Ready? My opinions. That's not the criteria for fellowship. Your personal views are not what we gather around. My biases, your politics, my interests, your affinities, none of these things have to do with fellowship. In the rest of the world, these are the substance of fellowship. Outside of the church, that's how fellowship happens. Someone has the same likes that you have, you get together. Someone shares your political views, you get together. Someone likes your opinions, you chat, you talk until there's an opinion they don't like. See, that's how the world works. Not here, not so here. It's not our assumptions. It's not our traditions. It's not our values. That, that is our values outside of this word. 
But what I think about something like the government's handling of COVID-19 is not the test of fellowship. Jesus is, period. Which is how we can still gather and have vastly different worldviews. I think I've told you before, one of my best friends in all the world, one of my dearest and most trusted friends is a liberal And we do not see eye to eye on so many political issues. And yet, we can talk about all those things. You know why? Jesus is the focal point of our fellowship. He is the issue. It is not where I stand on Donald Trump or Joe Biden, Fox News or CNN. These are not the witness of the congregation. The witness of the congregation is Jesus Christ. It can only be Jesus. Now we can debate and we can disagree and we can have lively discussions and disputes. And you can tell me, Pastor Rick, I think the way you've handled things in this church over the last four months is completely wrong. Let me just tell you, I've had that same thought. I've looked in the mirror and said, man, am I completely missing it? Am I blowing it here, Lord? And I'll tell you where my peace comes from. It's the fact that Jesus is the standard of our fellowship. It's the fact that as we begin to gather again, starting next week, as we begin to get in closer fellowship again and the congregation is called together, it doesn't matter what Pastor Rick thinks about this, that, or the other, what he's done about this, that, or the other, what matters is Jesus Christ. He's the witness of the congregation. Brothers and sisters, I'm just saying to you, and some of you have said, oh, I feel so bad for Rick in this season. This must be so hard. Not, not any harder for me than for you. We're all going through this. We all have decisions to make, so don't feel sorry for it. I'm fine. I'm good. Because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I keep having to come back to him and trust in him. But we must not, please, let me say this to the Bridge Fellowship. We must not let opinions about non-biblical issues divide us. We can have those opinions. We are welcome to those different opinions. We must not let them divide us one for another because Jesus is our standard of fellowship. By the way, it's not just a word for the bridge, that's for the congregation of the church in the world. Look back at verse 46 again, where the Lord said, he said, nor are you to break any bone of it. And then he said, all the congregation of Israel are to celebrate this. The lamb's bones were never broken. And so the bones of Jesus were never broken. But you know what the Hebrew pastor said? Hebrews chapter 10, verse five. When he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Listen, don't miss this. You cannot break the bones of Jesus. The structure is sound, unbreakable. But there is a way, Hebrews chapter six, verse six, to again crucify yourself to the Son of God and put him to open shame. That is, you can't break his bones, but you can harm his body. 
You cannot break his bones. But man, I can sprain the joints. I can pull the ligaments. I can bruise, wound, pierce again the body of Christ. Colossians 2.19, he is the head from whom the entire body, the congregation, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grow, ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. The joints, the ligaments, they connect the bones. The bones are unbreakable, not to be broken, but we stress, we tear at, we sprain joints and ligaments when we don't care for the congregation. In other words, we hurt our witness. 1 Corinthians 12, 26, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And when the body of Christ, the church, is bruised, when it is torn, when it is wounded, how do we heal? You know how? By the witness of the congregation. Let me be more specific. We are only accurate, authentic witnesses of Christ our Passover in as much as we love each other. In as much as we love the body. By this all men will know. You know the verse, John 13, 35. By this all men you will, will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And I keep coming back, I keep getting drawn back to the same verse over and over in these last days because it will be the defining distinction of his congregation that we love each other. That's what makes us different. Yeah, but you guys don't see eye to eye at all on certain opinions. No, we don't. It's okay, we don't have to. It's Jesus. And because he loves us, we are enabled to love each other. Christ our Passover. He is the witness of the congregation. And that means that the Bridge Fellowship and any gathering of believers in the name of Christ have the witness of Christ and that the love of Christ is our unifying testimony to the whole world. Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. That's it. That's how the congregation conforms around Christ, our Passover, the witness of the congregation. So you know what? If I'm having a hard time with a brother or sister, if joints are sprained, if ligaments are torn, the answer is I need to go right back to Jesus because in Christ, I am once again conformed with love and unity to the congregation of the saints. That, brothers and sisters, is to me the greatest significance of Passover. I'll end with this. John chapter 19, verse 38, just listen. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and he took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. 
So they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen wrappings with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. How do you think Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus treated the body of Christ? Can you, can you see it as they're wrapping with the mixtures and the fragrances and the aloes? Do you think they're just throwing the body around, slapping it on there, get it done quick, come on, we gotta do something. Where are we gonna put them? Stick them in this hole. Or do you see them with tears in their eyes and honor and respect and tenderness and kindness and care wrapping the body of Christ and then so gently taking it and Joseph of Arimathea saying, my tomb, there's not even been a dead body in there, therefore the tomb itself is not even defiled. Let's put him there. I see them carrying Jesus in and laying out his body. Perhaps one final look as they walked outside and rolled the stone closed. Brothers and sisters, if you see that kind of tenderness and loving care from Joseph and Nicodemus to the body of Christ, may we share, may we do the same. Father in heaven, thank you for your word to us this morning. Lord, Thank you for being so outspoken about all these things. Thank you for being so clear with your word to us. And thank you, Lord, that we have been given this morning ears to hear your word. Now I pray for perhaps the greatest application of anything that you've taught us in months, Lord, that the application of this word would be my love for my brothers and sisters. Father, where I have hurt brothers or sisters, I repent. I apologize and I'm sorry. Forgive me, Lord, for roughly handling the body when I have. And Father, give me a, a deeper compassion, all of us a, a deeper love, one for another, even to recognize in all the differences that should divide us, there is one potent, powerful truth that unites us, the truth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus, thank you for becoming our Passover. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.